Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. In February, The Guardian reported the launch of a new platform by Al Jazeera Network aimed to target conservatives in the U.S. We speak with Adil Eskandar, Professor of Global Communication at Simon Fraser University, about this new development. Later in the show, we celebrate National Poetry Month by bringing you some of the poetry of the Middle East celebrated poets, translated by Iraqi poet Sinan Antoun. Stay with us. In February, Al Jazeera launched a new platform called Rightly. The network's press release described Rightly as a new U.S.-based digital platform that will generate content for audiences currently underrepresented in today's media environment. The new platform aims to target Republicans who, quote, feel left out of mainstream media. Rightly's soft launch was on February 25th with his first show right now with Stephen Kent, a right-wing media commentator. Rightly's editor-in-chief is Scott Norvell, who was on the team that launched Fox News Channel in 1996. A former Heat Street staffer told The Guardian that Scott Norvell was instrumental in the transition of Heat Street from the libertarian youth-focused site as originally envisioned to the pro-Trump alt-right clone of Breitbart. I spoke with Professor Adil Eskandar about the history of Al Jazeera and its decision to expand its operation into the right-wing media ecosystem in the U.S. Adil Eskandar is an assistant professor of global communication at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. He's the author, co-author, and editor of several works, including Egypt in Flux, Essays on an Unfinished Revolution, and Al Jazeera, the story of the network that is rattling governments and redefining modern journalism. Al Jazeera started in 1996 after a project between the BBC and Saudi funders uh, under a company called Orbit attempted to launch the first ever 24-hour news network in Arabic. And that failed because of editorial interference on Saudi Arabia. Uh, at the time, it wasn't acceptable, or still isn't acceptable to talk about the manner in which human rights uh, is managed in, in Saudi Arabia. And so the network was shut down literally at inception. It was really a stillbirth. So it was at that time that the new Qatari Emir, Ahmed bin Khalifa al-Thani, who's no longer near his son is, but uh, he stepped into the fray and decided to relocate the uh, nucleus of the, those employees that were based in London and move them to Doha with a charge, if you will, or perhaps the, the latitude to present news in the manner that they see fit. So to do investigative reporting, uh, 24-hour news coverage, war correspondency, all of the things that didn't exist in the Arab media landscape at the time. And so that leverage afforded them a tremendous amount of freedom and agency, and it drew a lot of attention across the Arab world. And as a result of that, 
they were also pushing the boundaries as far as what is acceptable. So they ruffled a lot of feathers in the region. Uh, there were diplomatic uh, quagmires, attempts to shackle them and shut them down or arrests of journalists. So all of this happened between 1996 and 2011. And in that time, well, the assumption was that Al Jazeera was just this freewheeling network and now family of networks that has a no holds barred approach to doing things and cannot be infringed upon and everything is fine and dandy. And so it's a trusted source of news and there's no real kind of overarching project short of public interest and social responsibility. But what we've come to realize over this time is that the one uh, glaring um, problem in Al Jazeera's approach to doing things uh, has been a blind spot for Qatar itself. Yeah. So the, the nation from which it broadcasts a small peninsular state in the Gulf with uh, the second largest natural gas reserves and the central command of the U.S. military, which was used to launch multiple wars in the region, namely in Afghanistan and Iraq over the last two decades. So this is a country with growing momentum and growing leverage. And as that leverage began to be utilized, we started noticing that Al Jazeera is not in the least bit concerned about uh, critiquing Qatar's position in the world or in the region specifically. And so the assessment of what Al Jazeera, why Al Jazeera does things as a network or why the Qatari government chooses to do with Al Jazeera has now been reconstituted because it, it has now officially become perhaps what it's always been, but in more obvious terms, an outpost of the Qatari foreign policy. It is essentially promoting and propagating Qatari positions on regional and international politics. And so that belies and informs a lot of the decisions made by the network. So whether it critiques Saudi Arabia or not depends largely on the relationship between Qatar and Saudi Arabia at any given moment. How it covers the conflict in Syria, uh, how it covers the conflict in Yemen, how it covers the Bahraini revolution. Hmm. All of those are beholden to micro relations between Qatar and its friends and foes. Presumably, also, this particular pattern of news coverage and institutional investment is what informs the existence of Rightly, this new project. Adil, let's stay in the past a little bit. As you said, Al Jazeera was launched in 1996 in Qatar. Yes. Qatar's Amir pledged to let journalists, quote, report the news as they see it. In 2006... Qatar launched the English version of Al Jazeera. What differentiated Al Jazeera English, its mission, versus Al Jazeera Arabic? Arguably, both the Arabic network and the English network were launched to cater to their respective audiences. And so, in the Arab world, Al Jazeera had capitalized on Arab audiences that were deeply interested and perhaps thirsting for really solid news reporting and debates as well. Not to mention, I mean, we're not mentioning uh, this kind of deliberative discussion about politics, ideology, governance, all these things. So the English language network was launched to expand the frame if you will, to reach audiences that had typically not been communicated with. And perhaps to 
push an agenda of the global south, if you will, as an argument. Although it's hard to make a case that Qatar is part of the global south anymore with its extremely high GDPs and its entrenchment in the global economy. But nevertheless, the idea was to reach, to communicate the aspirations of communities and peoples in the, glo- in the global south to the global north in the lingua franca, franca the language most uh, common and most uh, widely used around the world. But arguably, as it stood, we started noticing that this differentiation between the two audiences and between the two media products spoke to perhaps conflictual relationships politically. So if you watch Al Jazeera English, there's, um, there's the assumption or the feeling, the general kind of sentiment or the tone that we're talking about a progressive, liberal a network that cares about human rights in a functional way uh, that doesn't try to sort of advocate or push for, but rather holds to accord right-wing politics and is critical of jingoism and patriot and excessive patriotism and fascism around the world. So you can begin to see kind of alliances between Al Jazeera English and the, the audiences of Pacifica Radio and Democracy Now! There's a real kind of growing seamlessness between the center-left mm. uh, and Al Jazeera English, whereas Al Jazeera Arabic, around the same time, uh, begins to morph into a network that draws upon more kind of right-wing, perhaps nationalist and pan-nationalist, and in some cases Islamist communities in the Middle East and North Africa. So we see a divergence in the audiences, which sometimes creates a, a lot of rifts and tension between them. So the two newsrooms are separated from each other. But if they were to ever come in contact with one another, you would see the incredible contradictions. A great example of that manifests today. One of the Middle East and Arab world's most um, notable leading feminists, Nawal Sadawi, mm. recently passed away. And the coverage of Al Jazeera English of her passing, this was someone who really pushed the boundaries on discussions of religion and was, very, was an ardent secularist and atheist for that matter, and uh, critiqued not just political institutions, but also religious institutions. Definitely. And the Arabic network, even the, the eulogy, included a lot of condemnations of her for pushing those boundaries. It was really a, a targeted attack against her. Whereas in the English language network, she was heralded as a hero or sort mm-hmm. of a, a trendsetter and a trailblazer for feminism in the region. And that sort of discrepancy between the two audiences has become a critical part of the way Al Jazeera operates, where the right hand does one thing, the left hand does something else, and you can continue to launch new networks and new operations so long as you keep them insulated from one another. You can continue to reach new audiences and new markets. I saw the post you're talking about on Twitter, side by side, the Al Jazeera English post and Al Jazeera Arabic post. Did it get a lot of pushback on social media? Yes, it did. And it's not just this. For much of the last 10 years, because this has been a stark and problematic issue, and and Mm -hmm. of course, we're talking about communities, the audience is not as bifurcated as Al Jazeera assumes them to be. A lot of people, like ourselves, are bilingual. We speak a language uh, of the Middle East, and we speak English or other sort of Western languages. So we're able to kind of navigate these spaces and code switch and notice the discursive and narrative differences. So they were definitely called out, not just on this, but so many other discrepancies in coverage, whether it's on the conflict in Syria or on Egypt or on Turkey. So 
it looks as though there are kind of double standards on each of their parts and that the two sides don't really talk to one another uh, or at least are ignoring each other's existence because they are speaking to different audiences. But yes, they are certainly held to account on these issues. But most of these discussions happening online or critiques yeah. um, are a little storm in a, in a teacup, if That's you will. Like, true. You know, the influence of Al Jazeera and the footprint of Al Jazeera are so substantial that it doesn't really transform their coverage in any way. And I don't think there's any real introspection at the end of the day, because unlike private media and other public or community-based or alternative media sources, Al Jazeera receives direct handouts from the Qatari government, so they don't really have to worry about losing advertisers. Mm-hmm. They don't have to re- really worry about losing constituencies or ratings for that matter. So they can continue to plod along irrespective of audience response. There's virtually any difference or change in, in coverage on the basis of public response. And we've seen that mm-hmm. across the board. In fact, we've had various instances where uh, you have walkouts of staff members or folks who decide to quit. Many of them don't really come out in outright condemnation of coverage here or there, but they leave in fairly public circumstances. And, and it doesn't really, the feedback mechanism isn't such that things will change. A great example of that is Rightly. The backlash against Rightly within the network among its staff is so significant and so substantial and so public. And yet Al Jazeera continued moving forward and uh, nothing really changes. So I think that is very informative. The decisions are really made behind closed doors in Doha. They're not being made online. They're not being made between communities or in partnerships with other actors or community groups or political entities. It's really a very high-level political decision-making as to what should be done where and where the buck stops. I just want to share the post that they had on Egyptian feminist Noel al-Sadawi, who passed away a few days ago. Al Jazeera Arabic and English language Twitter accounts told two very different stories about the passing. In Arabic, it said, she attacked religion and demanded the legalization of prostitution and questioned the Qur'an. The English language says, Nawal al-Sa'dawi, Egyptian author and women's rights icon, dies. So the difference is between being an icon and being an apostate. And you can see that both of those responses trigger or narratives trigger different responses in in different audiences. In the Arab world where people tend to be perhaps more conservative or maybe they're speaking to a more conservative audience, they're they're really trying to egg them on to despise her more or hate her or she's not being acknowledged in this case for exposing like female genital mutilation or creating circumstances where women can improve their livelihood or, you know, I mean, there's just no acknowledgement of any positive statements. Instead, it is outright condemnation. Mm-hmm. And in the other, she's an icon. And an icon is usually held in high regard as opposed to uh, someone who is condemned. So you could see that incredible disparity. But both of those are being devised by the same company and, uh, and they're reaching different audiences and they're capitalizing mm-hmm. on that. It raises the question of why is this happening and what does it mean in the grand scheme of things? And can the messenger be trusted if the messenger is really playing this game, you know, creating Mm. and entrenching more echo chambers where Mm. communities don't talk to each other, they don't really understand each other, but they're being kind of egged on 
to be more committed to their own existing worldviews rather than challenging them. Yeah. Qatar has used its uh, financial largeness to expand its sphere of influence. It launched Al Jazeera English in 2006 in the U.S., But Al Jazeera was not able to bring in enough viewers in spite of winning numerous awards and really fine documentaries. Why? How do you explain that? I think it's probably a combination of different factors. Uh, There there are people who've spent um, a substantial amount of time researching this. I would strongly recommend that listeners read Will Uman's book on Al Jazeera America specifically about why it hasn't been able to successfully break into the U.S. market. Um, I think at the outset, it was very poorly conceived. In essence, they wanted to situate themselves between kind of a BBC product and a CNN type network. Mm-hmm. So determining what their niche looks like was very, very tricky. They wanted to introduce diversity, but they also wanted to reach the heartland, if you will, quote unquote, heartland or middle yeah. America, yeah. not recognizing that there are some disparities between those two communities. But nevertheless, they, they did really stellar journalistic work that I think is, is quite absent from the media landscape in the U.S. But it's also very anachronistic because the media in the U.S. is getting faster and more furious and attention spans are, are dwindling and long form is also shrinking. Extensive feature pieces are less attractive nowadays. So re- they were really speaking to the professional cadre of journalists who take their job seriously as opposed to the masses at large. And you can see how networks like Fox News were, were killing it in the ratings, even though they were expending so little effort and so little energy. It was a time of punditry. And Al Jazeera America wasn't really participating in that. And so they ended up kind of falling to the wayside in terms of ratings. And they also couldn't brush off the stigma of being Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera had been stigmatized for a long time in the U.S. for being sort of an Arab, a pro-Arab, pro-Islamist, pro-Middle Eastern network that may have not obviously not supported, but gave a platform to Osama bin Laden during the early days of the war on terror. So all of these things were very difficult to brush off for middle America. And I think eventually it ended up seeming like a, a rather bland and, and slow moving ship at a time where nothing was moving at a snail's pace anymore, but it was like neck breaking speed in news coverage. So I think that's the combination of the stigma, the pace, and the fact that the product wasn't particularly resonant, that kind of ailed the network in the US. But that's not the same about Al Jazeera English, which continues to have a fairly large following around the world. But the footprint in the US has been rather minuscule in the grand scheme of things. Adil, all these internal tensions really were exposed during the 2010-2011 mass uprisings in the Arab world. They had reporters on the ground in Tunis, Egypt, Libya, Yemen. But at the same time, the network faced criticism for its biased reporting and aligning itself with Qatar's foreign policy in the Middle East. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, Al Jazeera was in the right place at the right time in 2010-2011. I mean, here's the largest network in the region with bureaus and offices and reporters across the area. And so when something like this happens, you know, mass movement that are almost like a domino effect from one place to the next, Al Jazeera were perfectly positioned to bring this to the airwaves and to bring the content 
content and the storylines, if you will, from these revolutionary movements to households all over the world. And in many instances, Al Jazeera was substantial in, it, in its ability to galvanize more audiences. As people watched Al Jazeera, they came out more. And so it was kind of a snowball effect. So Al Jazeera became very much kind of entangled with these revolutions. So when the counter-revolution started retaliating, Al Jazeera was at odds with these new configurations of power and authoritarianism. But more importantly, I think Al Jazeera also, as things started to get more entangled and more complicated, as we began to see popular sentiments rift and, and separate, I mean, one can't expect that the entire population of Tunisia or the entire population of Egypt or the entire population of Yemen are all in agreement about the kind of post-revolutionary realm. And so Al Jazeera, at that moment, I think, decided that their best bet is to hinge their support or their coverage on the political entities and political parties that are most substantial, that are that have the heaviest weight and are likely to be successful. And so that's when we started noticing a real tilt in favor of Islamist political parties, whether it's the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and Nahda in Tunisia and other configurations uh, across uh, the Arab world, particularly in places where these uprisings were happening. So as they hinged their bets on them, they all of a sudden became perceived as the go-to networks mm. for Islamists. And their critique of anyone who wasn't an Islamist turned into a double-edged sword. It was as the Islamists fell out of favor or were deposed from government by coups or, or by elections for that matter, we started seeing Al Jazeera kind of fall to the wayside because they had invested so much in Islamists that they were having a hard time bringing their legitimacy back, if you will. Mm. Um, and that's been the problem ever since with Al Jazeera Arabic, uh, that they are, effect I mean, their popularity has dwindled quite substantially across the Middle East and North Africa. And re they remain popular in pockets where uh, Islamist parties are either governing or within those communities who are out or oppositional. Uh, so they're popular in Turkey, they're popular among Islamists in Egypt, they're popular among those who are in agreement ideologically with them, which means that Al Jazeera has decided to forego its, its commitment to a much more complicated and much more nuanced representation of the region. And so it came at a very hefty cost, but they also could have been very successful had Islamists come and stayed in power in all of these countries. Al Jazeera would have been perfectly positioned to deliver and, and communicate the, the governance strategy of these kind of Islamists in office. But that didn't really pan out that way for a lot of complicated reasons. Let's fast forward to today. Can you tell us more about, rightly, this sort of Republican-centered platform that Al Jazeera has launched and why now? What is the calculus there for Qatar? It's interesting. One has to take a step back and sort of depersonalize this so that we're not kind of reactionary about it. So if the managers at Al Jazeera are looking at the world and guessing and wondering what constituency they're most incapable of tapping into and reaching, the experiment of Al Jazeera English, the conclusion of Al Jazeera America, and various other kind of circumstances should point them towards the American center right and right wing viewers. Those are the people that Al Jazeera has never been able to tap. And 
it's causing them a lot of trouble because if you're a Qatari official and thinking about public diplomacy and how do you create instruments to reach certain constituencies, knowing full well that when Trump is in office or any future kind of right-wing president, how do you have leverage in this particular circumstance? How do you brush off the negative perceptions of Qatar within this constituency? Knowing full well that the ratings for Infowars and Brightman Bart and Fox News are fairly high among these communities, as well as other right-wing talk radio content and podcasting for those communities. They are their own niche. So recognizing that there are tens of millions of people, not hundreds, over 100 million people, if one were to take into account the number of people who voted for Donald Trump. So this is a real kind of rich and sizable constituency that Al Jazeera has never been able to reach. So to think about ways to address them or communicate to them or produce content for them has been the Achilles heel for Al Jazeera. And so I think it makes sense for them to try and reach that community if the pure objective is not a political one, short of just propagandizing for Qatar. If you're trying to create a positive impression for Qatar in this community, then you want to reach them. So that's my argument for why they decided to go this route. And of course, it comes at a a lot of risks for them because the right hand does know what the left hand is doing now in the age of of the internet and and digital content production. So all of the staff members on Al Jazeera English and AJ Plus and all these other instruments are watching this thing unfold. And it feels at odds with everything that they're doing. And they neither understand nor nor are they committed to grand strategy by the Qatari government. They are just more concerned about doing good journalism. And this seems to them to be a real problem. But that's the pragmatic way in which Al Jazeera has been governed by those closed door conversations, as I said, happening in Doha. Have you been able to speak to Al Jazeera reporters and get their reaction? Yes, I have. I have a lot of both friends and colleagues who work for Al Jazeera, all of whom communicated with me on a very sort of confidential basis. And it's really critical for them to remain anonymous because of the hefty cost that this could come with. And we've noticed that most of those who were critical of rightly, I mean, they've been public, but many of them, they didn't state their names, in, even though they signed a petition calling for a revision of this decision. So yes, I've had a chance to talk to them. And of course, this doesn't speak for everyone, but for those that I have been in touch with, they're immensely disappointed and they feel sort of blindsided by the decision, that they weren't consulted, that it's out of odds with their mission as, as journalists, and that in some instances... They feel like it's in direct contravention of what they're trying to do. They believe that their task and their occupation is to inform the public. And they believe that, rightly, if it's committed to produce the kind of discourses that are expected, will be a source of disinformation and will undo some of the hard work that they've been active in trying to do over the last few years. So there's a lot of disgruntlement and upsetness, but as is typically the case, it eventually kind of fizzled away. And so anybody who's really upset can leave their job, or if they want to continue talking, then there will be repercussions. But uh, this ship has already sailed, essentially, is what Al Jazeera is telling them. Tell us about this show right now, which seems to be the only program that rightly produces right now. So I think now that the show is is available for, for screening and viewing, it's interesting to look at because... 
it's very much out of odds with the way Al Jazeera operates in the sense that Al Jazeera is an extremely high rolling network. There's so much money spent on aesthetics, on style, on studios and all these things. But rightly is produced as if it's kind of a small podcast out of a monochrome kind of room with two seemingly amateurish interlocutors and it's kind of a run-of-the-mill conversation. It seems comparatively boring and almost like a, a half-hearted attempt to reach this audience. So I don't know if that's that's the way it was originally designed or if this is in response to the chagrin and the frustration that they decided to kind of downsize or scale down the operation or maybe this is just to test the waters. But it looks to me to be a very, very monotone discussion about issues that matter to the right but aren't delivered in a charismatic enough way to tap into the punditry, that community that is interested in punditry, nor is it sophisticated enough or conceptual enough to tap into the people on the right who admire the William Buckleys or the Jordan Petersons. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's just trapped in this place where it's neither exciting nor is it profound. So I don't know where the audience is or how they've conceived of the audience. So I don't know if it's conceived as a half-hearted account or if it just ended up that way because because they're afraid of what the backlash might entail for their other more successful kind of broadcast projects. I watched a few episodes of it and it seems like they want to bring in young Republicans. They promote quote-unquote small government, they are anti-tax, and they lament the days of the Tea Party. This is what I gathered, and they also sometimes use pop culture in order to deliver this message. I don't even know how many people watch it. Is this an experiment they're running, or they're serious about this? It's hard to tell. Obviously, there's very little money invested in this. So, which is shocking because Al Jazeera is so accustomed to pouring in tons of money. The launch of Al Jazeera America cost up to a billion dollars just to start, even before operational spending happened. They bought current TV's bandwidth or on cable for half a billion dollars. So they're used to going big or going home. In this case, it looks like they're not doing that. So I don't know what's the circumstance here. But as you said, the tone is certainly libertarian in a very traditional sense, almost looks like a Cato Institute kind of network, but with comparatively less exciting, less gravitas, less adrenaline, less everything. So I don't know what exactly their objective is. If it's an experiment, it's not looking very good. The pilot project is quite dead on the water from the outset. So I don't know where they intend to take it from here, but maybe this is the sort of a hot air balloon to kind of see where things go, if it sways. But thus far, the audiences are not coming. The viewership on YouTube, which is the primary platform of use now, is still quite minuscule. It's not really getting anybody riled up or excited, and it's infinitely eclipsed by others. I have a feeling that, again, the stigma here is Al Jazeera. Had they launched this network independently or created a subsidiary that was US-based, perhaps there was a possibility of tapping into this audience. But right now, it still carries that sort of rubber stamp, the Al Jazeera rubber stamp, which is considered yeah. problematic for most of these audiences. It's going to be very difficult for these audiences to trust it, let alone feel excited about it, because it's just really, really, really 
monotone and slow. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't say that it's even savvy enough hmm. to tap into that particular constituency of young Republicans between the ages of, let's say, 18 and 35. It, it just isn't the kind of material that they would follow closely. But then again, wait and see what happens. But thus far, it's a non-starter. And maybe that's the fact that it is a non-starter is a way to comfort those within the news organization in Al Jazeera English and elsewhere who considered rightly to be a threat. So rightly is certainly not a threat. It's just a little experiment. It's almost like the limp leg. It doesn't have anywhere to go. So I can't imagine that it'll be substantial, but the proof is in the pudding. And right now the pudding is undercooked, underbaked. And I wanted also to ask you about the diplomatic tensions between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, which began in 2017. And then on January 5th, Saudi Arabia ended its blockade of Qatar. How did the blockade impact Al Jazeera, specifically when it comes to its audiences in the Arab world, as well as its coverage of the war in Yemen? You know, that's a really good question, because one of the conditions of the embargo was for Al Jazeera to curb its criticism of the governments in the region, namely Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and Egypt and United Arab Emirates. You know, the Qataris, not just Qatar, but Qatar and Al Jazeera as an extension, they had a choice either to buckle or not. And they certainly didn't buckle. In fact, they doubled down and they went on a full frontal attack of most of the governments in the region. The Khashoggi incident turned into round-the-clock coverage on Al Jazeera. So many things got more coverage. And even in the war in Yemen, where Qatar was initially involved, and it was no-go territory on Al Jazeera's networks in, in the first few years, once the embargo kicked in, Al Jazeera started rallying into Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates for their involvement in Yemen, and it became much more uh, committed to exposing the atrocities being committed there. So arguably, Al Jazeera scored a lot of points by calling a spade a spade when it comes to Saudi Arabia and other governments in the region. But it also became glaringly obvious that Al Jazeera is almost like Qatar's attack dog. Like it could be unleashed at will, depending on where governments stand vis-a-vis Qatar. And that, I think, became a bit of a problem. So while they capitalize on audiences who have a lot to be concerned about and a lot to complain about when it comes to Saudi Arabia and the conduct of the Egyptian government and, and other regimes in the region, but the double standards were not lost on anyone. It was fairly obvious that this is what's going on. And then once the embargo ended, it was almost like the switch has been flipped. So... Al Jazeera very rarely, or at least nowhere near the rates that it had before, it's toned down substantially mm. its criticism of Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi Arabia and various other governments. So it's almost like the end, which indicates that these journalists were never free to begin with. The editorial policy was never free to begin with. It was basically being deployed in various ways. And arguably, the Qataris got exactly what they wanted when they attacked Saudi Arabia during the embargo. The Saudis and the Emiratis and the Egyptians and the Bahrainis eventually succumbed. So Al Jazeera is actually a very useful and effective tool of not just public diplomacy, because it's not just about the public, Mm -hmm. but state diplomacy, Mm -hmm. where they can leverage their power to extract different things from various governments. And I would argue that 
if rightly were to ever be successful, the objective is to be able to influence and affect right-wing politics in the United States as well, to the benefit of Qatar. Al Jazeera has also been doing a delicate dance with the Iranian regime. On the one hand, they cover the protests and sometimes the human rights violations in Iran. On the other hand, for example, they bring people like Sayyid Mohammad Marandi, who is a mouthpiece of the Iranian regime. He's been a frequent guest on the network repeating regime's lies and propaganda. He also has been on Democracy Now!, And he's always introduced as this simple university professor, and he's never been seriously challenged. How do you see that relationship? And how has it evolved over time? And especially since Qatar right now is mending its relationship with Saudi Arabia, are you expecting to see different coverage of Iran? Absolutely. I think it's it's fair to say that the same game that was played with Saudi Arabia is being played with Iran. Iran was never really an adversary, but nevertheless, at least the Islamic Republic hasn't been perceived as an adversary. And in fact, Al Jazeera is largely disinterested in diaspora Iranians who have a lot of criticism of, of the regime. They are the latitude, if you will, or the wavelength that they're prepared to explore the spectrum is between kind of center and right on Iran. So it's everything from the nuclear deal with the United States being positive and all of its advocates, all the way to very pro-regime positions. So it's almost as if they're able to kind of gravitate between those two spaces. However, their relations, Qatar's relations in the region with Saudi Arabia, with the UAE and with others, determine the inflections of the relationship with Iran. So during the embargo, I would argue that that was a real kind of renaissance, if Mm. you will, for Qatari-Iranian relations, which transpired and translated into a lot more incredibly positive representations of Iran, like resilience and uh, modernity and innovation and sophistication and all these really positive tropes about the current state of Iran, as well as a a turning a blind eye or essentially pushing into the blind side, if you will, all of the discussions about human rights during this period. But then you start seeing that emerge again. So it's almost as if they're trying to hold the stick, not from the middle, but sort of center right and, and kind of hold on to that and letting things pivot in such a way so as to take advantage of those political relations when they come in handy. And so now where we begin to see that shift, it's obviously not as stark as what we've seen with Saudi Arabia, where it goes from enmity to friendship. But with Iran, that pivot is certainly there. And you can witness it as you watch the coverage on a very nuanced basis. Another issue that would be interesting to follow with respect to Al Jazeera's coverage is Qatar hosting the World Cup in 2022. Because Qatar is coming under criticism and condemnation for its treatment and exploitation of migrant workers. I came across a recent piece in Al Jazeera addressing the exploitation of migrant workers. And it was interesting that every paragraph about the abuse and exploitation and even death of these workers was followed by a response by the government of Qatar. For example, in response to the Guardian piece about the death of 6,500 migrant workers, Al Jazeera 
published Qatar's response, which says the mortality rate among these communities is within the expected range of the size and demographics of the population. And this went on and on throughout the article. How do you think uh, Al Jazeera has covered the internal affairs of Qatar? This is a very, very stark and obvious example of that incredible double standard. If the same number of people had died in the construction of stadia in Saudi Arabia or in Egypt, then you would have round-the-clock coverage on Al Jazeera. This is catastrophic. The numbers are are not within the range of the acceptable for human survival. Most of the people working on these sites are fairly young. They should not be dying at those rates. In fact, more people have died as a result of their work on these sites than of COVID in Qatar over the last year or so. And this is with an infectious, deadly virus. So in the grand scheme of things, the numbers speak louder than words. And my concern is not with the Qatari government trying to paint things differently. I mean, that's what diplomacy and nation branding is all about. But my concern is with Al Jazeera. This is a network that we expect to hold to account wrongdoing, especially when, I mean, The Guardian called it exactly what it is, which is essentially modern day slavery. So we expect Al Jazeera to do this. And this is work that is literally across the street from them. The construction sites are within a few kilometers of Al Jazeera's Mm. headquarters. So you don't really have to go out of your way to conduct substantial investigations of this wrongdoing. You don't have to condemn the top, the executive branch of government, but at the very least, do something about it. But instead, Al Jazeera has turned into a PR firm for Qatar on this issue. So there's more coverage of press conferences conducted by the Qatari government in response, the minuscule and symbolic actions to change the kafala system, the labor sort of contractual agreements. All these aesthetic window dressing processes and policies that are being put into place are getting oversized coverage on Al Jazeera, whereas the actual people dying and being shipped and sent home in body bags isn't getting coverage. It really doesn't take much to do this work. And we know this because Al Jazeera does it everywhere else. Every single death in Syria is documented by Al Jazeera. How is it possible that this is out of their range of coverage? So I think all of this is not lost on audiences. They're extremely well aware of those contradictions. But again, it ends up discrediting, unfortunately, and delegitimizing the messenger. But that's where we are. And so the real question is, will Al Jazeera eventually, at some point, it's been since 1996, will Al Jazeera eventually become an independent news provider that is able to present news that matters to people in a way that doesn't advantage those in power? And unfortunately, thus far, that hasn't been the case universally, at least not as far as their own backyard. This is such a massive project. The Guardian reports that in the past 10 years, Qatar has embarked on an unprecedented building program, largely in preparation for the football tournament in 2022. In addition to seven new stadiums, dozens of major projects have been complicated or are underway, including a new airport, roads, public transport systems, hotels, and a new city which will host the World Cup final. Yeah. (laughs) It is an absolutely massive undertaking. I mean, we know that building and preparations for World Cups and Olympics are massive neoliberal projects that, in essence, suffocate 
expenditure on services. But of course, Qatar has extremely deep pockets, but it's not coming at a price to the Qatari population. Mm. It's coming to an expense to those essentially indentured labor members who get flown in and they live in subhuman conditions and they the likelihood of them losing their lives or having life-altering injuries is immensely substantial. So yes, it's a massive operation, but the costs are not financial to Qatar. Qatar could not care less about the money that is spent on these projects. Instead, it is about clout, it is about public image, it is about leverage, and it's about perception in the world. And one of the reasons why they're so upset by the guardians and various other news organizations' coverage of this catastrophic situation is that it creates a blemish on Qatar at a time where the World Cup should be an opportunity to celebrate and celebrate Qatar and kind of hold it in, in high regard. Not to mention the incredible discussions around corruption within the International Football Federation or Federation of International Football Associations, FIFA, that seems to indicate a lot of bribery that precipitated and resulted in both Qatar securing the World Cup uh, in 2022 and the Russian equivalent in the last World Cup. So there's a lot of really kind of, I should say, like dirty laundry that is neither being aired, nor is there a face-saving attempt to do lip service by saying, okay, at least we can talk about this with some modicum of openness. But instead, it's being shuttered, and there's no discussion happening on Al Jazeera about any of these things. So that, I think, is, is unfortunately incriminating for a news organization, many of whose staff are deeply committed to doing journalism right. And I'm sure many of them are outraged by this, but unfortunately, they can't take this outrage to the airwaves. And many people have left, especially after the 2011 uprisings in the Arab world. Yes, many people have left. But nevertheless, Al Jazeera is still one of the news organizations in the world that pays the best. So the positions and jobs at Al Jazeera are incredibly coveted. And every journalist, reporter, editor, producer has to think twice and thrice before they decide to walk out and to explore the alternatives at a time where jobs in journalism are dwindling, where the amount of funds available for reporting are dwindling, where foreign correspondency has turned to agencies and bots and citizen journalism and algorithms and, and automatons. So at the end of the day, those with jobs in Al Jazeera are trying to keep them, lest they end up with nothing else. And of course, there's a long line of people waiting to take those jobs once they become available. So that's the unfortunate arithmetic of all of this. Adel Iskandar is an associate professor of global communication at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. He's the author, co-author, and editor of several works, including Egypt in Flux, Essays on an Unfinished Revolution, and Al Jazeera, the story of the network that is rattling governments and redefining modern journalism. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
April is National Poetry Month, and this week we bring you some of the poetry of the Middle East's most celebrated contemporary poet, Palestinian Mahmoud Darwish, translated and read by Iraqi poet Sinan Antoun, as well as poems from a book entitled, Unfortunately, It Was Paradise. Sinan Antoun's co-translation of Unfortunately, It Was Paradise was nominated for the Pan Prize for Translation in 2004. of others. As you prepare your breakfast, think of others. Do not forget what doves eat. As you wage your wars, think of others. Do not forget those who seek peace. As you pay the water bill, think of others, those who are breastfed by clouds. As you return home, your home, think of others. Do not forget those who live in tents. As you sleep and count the stars, think of others. There are those who cannot find space to sleep. As you free yourself with metaphors, think of others, those who lost their right to speak. As you think of distant others, think of yourself and say, I wish I were a candle in the dark. I thought that I had died on Saturday. So I said, I must stipulate something in my will. I did not find anything. I said, I have to invite a friend to tell him that I am dead, but I did not find anyone. I said, I must go to my grave to fill it, but I did not find the way and my grave remained empty. I said, I must do what I must, Write the last line on shades, but the water spilled onto the letters. I said I must do something here and now, but I did not find an act worthy of a dead man. I screamed, this death has no meaning, absurdity and chaos in the senses. I will not believe that I have died a full death. Perhaps I am somewhere in between. Perhaps I am a retired dead man spending his short vacation in life. Mercy Bullet I am jealous of the horse when its leg is broken and it feels the insult of its inability to attack and retreat in the wind, they treat it with the mercy bullet. As for me, if something is broken in me, 
physical or moral, I ask that a professional killer be found. Even if he is one of my enemies, I will pay him his fees and the bullet's cost. I will kiss his hand and the gun. And if I can write, I will praise him with a precious poem. And he would choose the rhyme and the meter. With shyness, with shyness, I listen to an old song on a scratched record. With shyness, I smell the scent of a rose that is not mine. With shyness, I scratch a body part. With shyness, I use my five senses. With shyness, I succumb to my sixth sense. With shyness, I live as if I am the guest of a gypsy who is about to depart. In Jerusalem, I mean inside the old wall. I walk from one epoch to another without a memory to correct me. There, prophets share the history of the sacred they ascend to the heavens and return less crestfallen and less sad. Love and peace are sacred and coming to the city. I was walking over a slope and thinking, how can narrators disagree on the light speech in a stone? Do wars break out because of a stone's dim light? I walk in my sleep, I gaze in my sleep. I see no one behind or before me. All this light is for me. I walk, run, fly, and become someone else in the manifestation. Words bloom like grass from Isaiah's prophetic mouth. You will not be safe unless you believe. I walk as if I am someone else. My wound is a white evangelical flower. My hands two doves on the cross, flying and carrying the earth. I don't walk. I fly and become someone else. There is no place and no time. Who am I? I am not I in the presence of the ascent. But I think only the prophets spoke classical Arabic. What else? What else? A female soldier shouts suddenly. It is you again. Didn't I kill you? I said, you killed me. And like you, I forgot to die. There is no city in the city, no here except there, and no there except here. I Belong There by Mahmoud Darwish, translated by Carolyn Forche and Munir Al-Akish. I belong there. I have many memories. I was born as everyone is born. I have a mother, a house with many windows, brothers, friends, and a prison cell with a chilly window. I have a wave snatched by seagulls, a panorama of my own. 
I have a saturated meadow. In the deep horizon of my world, I have a moon, a bird's sustenance, and an immortal olive tree. I have lived on the land long before swords turned man into prey. I belong there. When heaven mourns for her mother, I return heaven to her mother. And I cry so that a returning cloud might carry my tears. To break the rules, I have learned all the words needed for a trial by blood. I have learned and dismantled all the words in order to draw from them a single word, home. That was Sinan Antun reading the poem I Belong There from Unfortunately It Was Paradise, selected poems of Mahmoud Darwish. Sinan Antun's co-translation of Unfortunately It Was Paradise was nominated for the Penn Prize for Translation in 2004. it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. The group made serious demands for five institutions to be established on Alcatraz. And why don't we have them yet? A Center for Native American Studies, an American Indian Spiritual Center, and an Indian Center of Ecology that would do scientific research on reversing pollution of water and air. A great Indian training school that would run a restaurant, provide job training, market indigenous arts, and teach the, quote, noble and tragic events of Indian history, including the Trail of Tears and the Massacre of Wounded Knee. And a memorial, a reminder that the island had been established as a prison initially to incarcerate and execute California Indian resistors to U.S. assault on their nations. Advancing the conversation to abolish racism for over 70 years. 94.1 KPFA. Hard Knock Radio's own Davey D and author Jeff Chang have a new book coming out, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A Hip-Hop History. This American Book Award winner, now adapted for young adults, is the true story of hip-hop. Based on original interviews with DJs, b-boys, rappers, activists, and gang members, with many unforgettable portraits of many hip-hop founders and present-day icons. Can't Stop, Won't Stop describes the events, ideas, and music that were the hip-hop generation's rise to the present day. Jeff Chang and DVD chop it up in a Zoom event happening Tuesday, April 20th at 7 p.m. To get the link, just go to kpfa.org and scroll down to the opening page to this event. Can't stop, won't stop selling madness. Can't stop, won't stop selling madness. You're listening to 94.1 KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K24-8BR in Santa Cruz and online worldwide at kpfa.org.